Hello, hello, and welcome to That Tech Show, the show that reveals the magicians behind the magic that is everyday technology. Today, we have Erica Stanford on the show, and, well, Chris, who is Erica Stanford? Erica Stanford is the founder of the one and only Crypto Curry Club, the UK's most recommended crypto networking and events organisation, all powered with a common interest and love for the British national dish. But Erica doesn't just stop there. She's the publisher of both the weekly Crypto Courier Industry Newsletter and the Blockchain Industry Review. She's the advisor to several crypto startups, a guest lecturer at Warwick Business School, and she's the author of Crypto Wars, Faked Deaths, Missing Billions and Industry Disruption, which has been described as an accessible guide to the confusing and fast-growing world of crypto scams. So get ready for some great crypto stories and scams coming up. My name is Erica Stanford. I'm the founder and run the Crypto Curry Club. So that's the main crypto community in the UK. And last year wrote the book, Crypto Wars, Faked Deaths, Missing Billions and Industry Disruptions, all about the biggest hacks and scams in the crypto space. So plenty of stuff for us to get into today then. So where to, where should we start first? The Curry Club probably came first. So why don't we start there? Yeah, so the, the Crypto Curry Club, it was until lockdown, a, a lot of fun. <laughs> I, I started that because I wanted to meet other people in the in the crypto space and find out more what was going on. And uh, other events, there were some that were good, but were very technical and very dry, but were quite hard to meet people. And, and other events were just basically sales pitches for scams. But at, at all of the other events, even the good ones, you, you tended to be sat in rows listening to a speaker and at the end they'd say, well, go network and relatively outgoing. But if, if I'm told to go up to complete strangers <laughs> in a room and talk to people I don't know. That was not within my comfort zone or something I found even remotely easy. So I was sort of one of the, the multiple awkward people standing you know, at that, that, that the side of it, maybe talking to the one person there that I knew or, or sort of you know, trying to look busy getting a drink or something. So I, I started the carries I'd been to. It was it was someone else's event for a different industry, but that was over a Christmas curry. So mm. curry being the national British food and you know, Christmas curry being a traditionally good way to get together with people. And I just, you know, it was such a good event because you're sat around these big tables sharing lots of food and drink. And it was it was all very nice and very easy to to meet and talk to people. And, you know, it really is easy when you're sat opposite people sharing a load of food together. So I thought, well, that's exactly what's needed in the space. And curry being the only acceptable food in Britain to share, I suppose, and and crypto curry being a good name. So we started it and it, it grew. Yeah, it is a great name. I mean, I think I've I've come across some curry clubs in the past before. I think it is a it is a thing, but never a crypto one. I think that's a great idea. I, I think it's the only crypto curry club going. <laughs> I hope it's the only crypto curry club going. <laughs> well, it's the only one called the Crypto Curry Club, I it, suppose. It is, yeah. So, so when did you start that then? Couple- that was in 2018. And uh, and and how how big? Well, until lockdown, because you know things changed then. Yes. How how big did it? Did you manage to grow it? How much interest did you have in it? Well, it it, it was remarkable that the first one, it, it was really. I just invited a few people I'd already met in the space, and then went through LinkedIn and invited a few other people that I thought looked really interesting, and and just rented out an Indian restaurant, which was owned by a friend of a friend. And you know, we had a we had a space and 25 people came and ended up staying for about eight hours. It started at one in the afternoon and I left about nine and there were still people there sort of talking and drinking. 
think wow. people had gone onto the bar opposite afterwards. But it, you know, it, it actually was really good, and I think for the first time, people felt that they were in a sort of a community space with you know, where it was easy to talk to other people who understood the same thing and were working in the same space and you know with lots of food and drink so the second one and and, and the ones they're after just sold out really quickly one of them i just like, sent an email out to, to a few people that had come and a few of us who'd asked to be told about them and it sold out within about an, an hour wow then we we you know, quite soon had some of the big corporates coming, the big you know, search engines, the universities, the banks, and then founders of the startups and so forth coming. And you know, there was one of them a couple of months in. We had someone from Nike and Google and Facebook there, and I was like, wow, this is crazy. And then one soon after, someone from the UN came, and I was like, this is crazy. <laughs> and and wow. it, it it just grew. So by lockdown. I, I think we had a, over about a thousand people who just from the, the London area, and we had a couple others in, in the other tech hubs in, in, in the UK around London. So, so by lockdown, we had, a, I think, just over a thousand people who, who'd asked to sort of be subscribed to be told about the next events. And I used to do that on a sort of quite invite only basis so that we could make sure that everyone coming to the events was was sort of of the right type of person so mm -hmm. relevant to the industry working in the right space wasn't involved in a scam or anything like that <laughs> um because you know that that was still a problem and, and since lockdown that that's gone up about 4x um which has been remarkable so it's increased during lockdown it's, it's increased a lot wow so how, how did you make that transition then into lockdown? Then? Did, have you, have you, is it now a virtual curriculum? Well, I mean, sa sadly not. Um, we, we haven't quite managed to, to ship the, the curries for everyone. We did a, a <laughs> virtual chocolate tasting experience where a chocolate company shipped uh, real chocolates to, to everybody and gave a virtual talk, which was a, a lot of fun during lockdown. But, but no, we, we, we've done did over about 50 webinars and sort of panels and, and live chats with the, the community. We, we launched an industry publication, Blockchain Industry Review. So that goes out every month. It's sort of deeper dive features and interviews with people in the space. We had the, the newsletter that we started just I think, a few months before lockdown, the Crypto Courier. Um, and uh, and nice. that grid. So I think it was just a combination of, you know, we did a few quizzes at the start of lockdown. You know, this was at a time when we all thought, oh, it's just a few weeks of being mm -hmm. at home and then we'll go back to London and see people again. And I think a combination of the, the virtual events, some of those have had really, really good attendee numbers and, you know, hundreds of attendees from all around the world, in, in some cases, joining those in the publication. And I think just various words of, of, of praise and sharing things on, online has has led people pretty much organically to it. Well, I think that's the thing, isn't it? With, uh, with with the lockdown stuff and the virtual stuff, it allows you to make things a little more international. So, is is that something you do? You, do you envisage that continuing, like a, a more of an international involvement in the curry club? Is it going to be exported? Are you exporting the national <laughs> dish? <laughs> well, it, it, that that has been really nice, and that that's been one of the, the blessings of of lockdown because we used to have speakers at events, for example, mm. and we we had the occasional person we had some people fly in from from silicon valley and from the states and from europe to the events or to speak at the events but you know mostly it was a very much a british a uk thing and and then suddenly by going virtual we could pretty much have anybody in the world to speak so we've had some remarkable people speaking from canada from the states from all over the world and you know that, that we could get them to speak because they're interesting and, and relevant and, and topical and it didn't really matter where they were based or you know the fact that they were also locked down in wherever it was at the time 
So that, that has been great and that has really opened it, it up. As for international events, I mean, let, let's see. We haven't even been able to go back to having anything sure. in, in, in London true. or the UK yet. <laughs> it sort of started, hopefully, you know, hey, hoping that this last month we'd be able to get people to back together in person. And again, we had two tiny little events, just a small group in a, in a place outside when that opened up again. And, and you know, we were meant to have one on Thursday and I've just cancelled it because the corona mm. rates are so high at the moment. It just seems, frankly, uh, reckless to, to get people together. Yeah, the uh, the government have the opposite opinion, of course, at the minute. But, uh... Well, y- yes, but... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> but yes, no, that makes that makes total sense. So, so in terms of starting the curry club, did you have a prior experience in organising events? I mean, where where did the idea come from? Zero experience um, to, to answer that question. Honestly, <laughs> the, the 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 idea literally came from I'd been to this other curry club. It was it was this sort of property investors Christmas curry mm. thing, and it was just so good, really, really friendly, really easy to get to know people. I thought that's exactly what's needed for the space. And I mean, as you say, there are, there are a number of curry clubs across the UK and it's, it's a sort of a popular-ish idea. I, I didn't think it would get quite so big. All I really thought it was going to be initially, I thought Crypto Curry Club, that's a good name. That's a bit of mm. fun. And there wasn't anything else like that. There wasn't really a community. There was no way that was easy for people to get together. So I really initially thought, we'll just do it once a month, you know, one afternoon a month, get people together, you know, get over, over some food, some drink, and just get to know people like that way and then see them again the next month and so forth. So that was the initial plan. And you know, for the first, I don't know, six months or a year, that, that's literally all it was. We just got together once a month, a group of people to chat about relevant things in the space. And then it, it got too big for that. So we had one about crypto, one about blockchain. And then it, it sort of expanded from there where we got to have a, a bigger community and have more and more niche themed events and more and more niche themed speakers. Hmm. And where did your interest in crypto come from? So a friend, I, I heard about crypto first in 2017. A friend told me about it and, and sort of thought I'd be interested. So I started having a look into it. Where my interest came from, I, I'd lived in, in Buenos Aires during sort of what was the economic crash time there. It was a, a year abroad from my uni degree hmm. um, where I was meant to be, I think, in theory, learning Spanish and uh, I'd had rather a bit more fun sort of traveling around Argentina, but anyhow. Um, and, 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 but, you know, I was spending time in Buenos Aires and it's this absolutely incredible city and made friends with some locals and then had a whole community of friends there. And the, the first sort of lesson that you, that you taught, that you were taught from people that you became friends with and what you saw, nobody kept money in banks the first thing they did when they got paid their salaries they got paid their salaries in pesos was to cash out the the pesos and convert them into physical euros and dollars and keep those those physical notes in safes in their houses and this Mm. was at a time where the whole sort of economy had been disrupted disrupted there there was inflation there was a lot of uncertainty labor was you know effectively seen as as being you know worthless the whole economy had been disrupted and the sort of working classes there were so many people that had become homeless middle class had become poor the upper classes the whole class system had changed and the whole economy had changed there so everybody was very nervous everybody was was disrupted there were lots of protests i mean constantly on the streets in buenos aires at the time there were people protesting and banging pots and pans and then sort of 
you know, it really people were really worried. People just didn't trust the bank. So that had stuck with me. And I, I used to spend summers during uni going over to South America and, and traveling around. And one of those, I think it was the summer before I was in, in Buenos Aires, I'd, I'd been in Guatemala just traveling around alone and, you know, going totally off the beaten path. I was a little blonde, I don't know, whatever I was, 17, 18 year old girl and got mugged like four times in a row to the point that, you oh, know, I'd wow. gone out with a few credit cards and traveler's checks and whatever you had that whatever, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd set off with and, and all of those had been one after the other stolen from me. So I was, I was at a point, <laughs> I was in some remote village there with, with zero money and zero means to be able to, to, to get money anymore because they'd all been stolen. So the only way to get money without a bank card there was Western Union, the mm. remittance company. So I sort of had to walk several miles to this Western Union office and called my dad. And you know, my dad very kindly went to town in, in England the next day and transferred me money. And you know, that had stuck with me because they charged 14% which is high if you, you get sent 100 quid, 86 quid arrives. So that's demonstrably less. And it it took three days to arrive. So I had to, you know, walk back from the Western Union and then three days later, walk back there again, you know, and then you you got cash. And, you know, this was after I'd, I'd been mugged so often that the last thing you want to do is, is be stuck <laughs> with a load of cash and, and, you know, have to do that repeatedly. And, you know, it was, it was one of those things, you know, it was, it was a summer, I was young, it was inconvenient, but I was going to go back to uni and, and you know, no, no big drama. But that had really stuck with me because that was literally the only way to get money mm. there if you don't have a bank account. And, you know, I'd, I'd done some sort of looking up into it and reading up into it and geeked out a bit. And you've got a third of the world's population that don't have access to banking, that that don't have access to cards, that literally have to rely on these remittance companies. And they're absolutely barbaric companies. They, they literally do whatever they can to extort the maximum amount of money out of the poorest people in the world because they know these people have absolutely no choice. They know they mm. can't get banking. They know if they want to receive money from friends or if they want to send money home to family or whatever, that they have to rely on these remittance companies. So in Western Union charged 14%, but some of them charged 30%. The the average around the world is 7%, which is it's a huge amount of money. And this is people who mm. really don't earn a lot. And, you know, in some cases, there's these stories where people literally have to choose, you know, if their kids or whatever eat that, mm. that day mm. due to 7% of all of their money or, or more just going on these remittance fees. So, that had, had really sort of stuck with me. So when I heard about crypto, you know, you, you read about it, you, start, you sort of send a few microtransactions and it arrives instantly and you can send it for almost free. And it's, it's I mean, not that it was easy to use then, but, you know, mm. it, was, it was certainly a lot easier than going to a Western Union office and doing that. <laughs> so, you know, I could just see that how much potential there was for this. And you can just send these transactions, they arrive instantly. And this was... This was over ten years ago. If you wanted to send money abroad, you had to, you know, you had to go to a bank and you had to do it, and you had to pay twenty five quid, and it took days to arrive, and you had all these mm -hmm. high forex charges, you know. And it, it, there's no need for the banks to charge you that, but that's just what they did charge you because they could. And, and suddenly, with crypto, you could just send money instantly. So I, I, I was just fascinated by the space and just started reading more and, and wanted to learn more about it. Yeah, it feels quite archaic, really, doesn't it? When you go back to that. Uh that that story really of 
over 10 years ago and what it was like to because it was even like that for transferring money but this is before faster payments i suppose as well in the uk you know where you'd actually be able to make a payment in you know a, a matter of moments i mean and that's the thing with with crypto you know it's it's easy for us you know if, if, if you're in london you can just tap something with an iphone or with a card or whatever now and and it, it's all quite easy but mm. that's not the reality for a lot of people around the world and i think there's people get excited with the whole trading side of crypto and the volatility and all of that. But actually you've got this whole technology that means just by being able to send money for free and mm-hmm. instantly and to anyone and without having to rely on sort of corrupt or other third parties and so forth, it, it just opens up this world of possibilities for remittances, for the gig economy, for micropayments, for microloans, for microinsurance, for paying for content, for tipping people. There's, mm-hmm. there's so much potential with it. So with with your uh, your background then you talked about what you were doing at, at uni studying languages what happened in between that university course and the deciding to set up the crypto curry club did you have a technology background in the midst of that or not <laughs> no not at all no <laughs> no i i got a job in in sales in the city in in london and and sort of worked in sort of sales and marketing strategy mm. for a few different tech companies um so no i i'm not remotely technical and and, and continue to not be remotely uh, <laughs> technical a- a- at all. And, you know, it's, it's not the tech that I'm interested in. And, mm. You know, I think that's what's so fascinating about the space for me, you know, I, my technical ability, I can, I can just about master using my iPhone. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but, but no, not at all. I, I think mm. what, what is interesting for me is how there's so many really super cool use cases for it. And, you know, the, the other thing that's really nice about the space is by running the Critter Curry Club, you get to meet so many amazing people, just, just incredible people, people that are, are working in the space because they want to, because they find it exciting, because it's so fast moving, because innovation is going so fast. So you meet people constantly who are ex-defense, ex-C-suite of, of global corporates, ex-founders of, of, you know, the biggest companies in the world, you know, the most incredible people, large investors, billionaires, whatever, students, the the sort of the whole range of of people who who want to be in the space and are are choosing to work in space, not because it it makes them the most money or anything, just because they're so excited by it. And it's so fast moving. And it's, it's just an incredible space of so many interesting people working in it. Yeah, I think you 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 know you hit on a really good point with the application of it in terms of how it could be used and how it will be used, I suppose, over the next ten years. I, I'm I'm wondering whether was there a, was there a, was there a learning curve for you when you know you started getting into crypto because there certainly was for me. But I wonder if that's just because of how deep I decided to go with it in terms of understanding blockchain, etc. Oh, oh, constantly. I mean, I mean, I think that's that's part of my nature. I, I sort of <laughs> tend to sort of geek out and, and deep dive a little bit so uh, yeah absolutely i read everything i could get my hands on i was just all over google but you know read read, read books I, I sort of absorbed myself to to get my head around it and it, it's still constantly people you know get asked sometimes now do you sort of understand it or how do you keep up with it it's like well it's just impossible um <laughs> you know it's, it's, it's utterly impossible i i think to, to keep up with with how much is happening because there's so much that's constantly happening and it's, it's all changing so fast. I, I think you'd need a thousand people to be able mm. to keep on top of everything. So yeah, absolutely massively constant steep learn, learning curve. And, you know, when I'm really sort of surrounded by it, you just constantly feel overwhelmed by how much there is and how much I don't know and how fast things are, are changing. 
Oh, good. Well, I'm glad I'm not the only one. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, I'm constantly intimidated by it all, to be honest. <laughs> well, you mentioned as well, um, you know, part of the reason for, for starting the, the Curry Club was also to weed out the scams as well. So I'm curious about the scam side of things and why you, you know, why, why do you think that plays such a big part in crypto? Are there that many scams out there? Yeah. <laughs> yeah so when i started the cur- the curries what i was really conscious about was because this was our well sort of after and at the tail end of the whole sort of ico bubble period so i was really conscious of that that, that most of the events you went to that there was at least one person trying to promote some sort of really really dubious investment scheme or you know pr- trying to promote something that you know, it was, was that, let's be diplomatic at the very best at the, on the grey side of, of sort of ethically good and, and legal. So I, I was really conscious of that. I, I wanted to keep the, the, the sort of the curries, you know, professional and, and, and good and, and, and scam and promotion free. So, you know, initially we had to be really, really careful to check to check people just because there were so many people trying to promote these dodgy projects mm. um, all, all over the space. And it's, it's now been determined, I think it was by the SEC in America, that of all of the the ICOs, of all of the sort of the crypto projects that launched from around the 2016, 2018 period, 98% now were either scams or have, have lost their investors all of their money. And, you know, for as far as investors are concerned, if it was a scam or if it was just an awful project that failed miserably due to the founders or due to the, the project or the idea or the market or whatever it was, for, for the investors, it's the same it, It's the same end. They still lose all of their money. So it, there's an enormous amount of, of, of projects that, you know, some, some were downright scams, some have been sort of Ponzi schemes and, and you know, trying to scam people as the get-go from the start, and that was mm. their sole aim. And some have done remarkably well at that, and 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 scammed tens of billions of dollars out of people, and many others. I, I would argue probably didn't set out to be scams. They mm. they maybe started off as slightly naive and slightly optimistic, and then it was people getting caught up in the whole hype and the whole excitement of all of this crypto space, and not you know, not really maybe understanding it, just thinking this is this new digital money and everyone's going to get rich quick. And if we say it's better than Bitcoin and we make certain promises and we pay a freelancer to, you know, make us some a nice new website and a nice white, white paper and and sell this cryptocurrency, we'll make lots of money. So I think there was a lot of that. And I think that was just slightly before there was no regulation at the time. And I think many people weren't probably aware that there might be regulation coming in and that there might be consequences for for launching these projects, most of which have now failed. So there's been an enormous amount of of, of scams in this space and, you know, some some really, really bad scams, some really very clever scams that, that are run and and orchestrated by organized crime where they, they've literally got billions of dollars uh, in for marketing budgets and and to promote wow. them and to run them and to grow them and then they go from scam to scam so there's there's some that are, are very large and very sophisticated that that just reel in millions of people so how, how do you identify them then how, how do you know which is just a bad business versus <laughs> something that has organized crime behind it potentially oh it, it you know it's, it's getting harder and harder so there, there were some in you know in the earlier days of crypto where the scams were at least to the, the people who wanted to see it 
where, where many of them were quite clearly Ponzi schemes and, and mm. were quite clearly making claims that weren't possible. And, and some of the worst scams will, will make these claims and promises. Well, if you invest in this, we'll, we'll mine Bitcoin for you. And mm. we've got these incredible mining um, rigs. So we'll mine Bitcoin for you and we'll get you back double or get you get you'll get you back x percent or we've got this bitcoin doubler so send us your bitcoin we'll send you back double within 24 hours or we've got this you know this trading algorithm or we've got this trading bot which just trades bitcoin so send us your bitcoin send us your money we'll we'll trade it and within x amount of time we'll send you back double or we'll send you back one percent a day or whatever it is and they made all of these claims and you know the, the the hard thing was they made all of these claims and you know traditionally you'd say well if if any claim is is made or promised or guaranteed run for the hills because it's, it's impossible to do that it's illegal to do that the you know just being practical that the best banks and and funds and in the world that have infinite money to hire the best traders and use the best bots and software and algorithms and everything they can't guarantee those returns. So how can a, a sort of a small unknown crypto startup? Mm-hmm. So if one were to apply sort of a few sort of sensible questions, one could perhaps at least question how how real or possible uh, or sustainable it was. But they made all of these claims. But the problem was for every claim made, they, they made these claims really sort of trying to appeal to vulnerable people and, and trying to appeal to the whole, you'll get rich quick if you to send us our money thing. But all of those returns had already been made in crypto, legitimately in, in Bitcoin and in the earlier cryptocurrencies it had already gone up by those amounts. So it was much easier for them to make those claims because people were already aware of those figures, of those statistics. And, I, I, you know, now... It's much harder because the scams are getting really good. They're getting really sophisticated. So mm-hmm. the websites are good. They look professionally done, and they 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 really have no qualms in what they say. So they'll they'll make up these claims to say, well, we're regulated by so and so. We're we're in partnership with so and so. We've got Visa cards or Mastercards that we can issue and and give out. We're trusted by so and so. We've got so and so on our team. Look at our amazing reviews. We've got reviews by so-and-so, so-and-so. And, you know, with the scams, they're, they're often fake. They'll literally mm. make up all of those claims. So for people looking on that aren't naturally cynical, aren't expecting to be scammed, the websites look very good. And now you've got the whole technology where they can impersonate email addresses and impersonate websites and impersonate celebrities social media profiles so you've got the whole thing where yes some celebrities and influencers have been promoting scams and other times they're hacked or their websites or their social medias Mm. are impersonated so well that unless you really are are looking for a scam it could be very hard to see if it's a scam or not yeah you're not going to find it i guess i think you have to be very very skeptical Mm. um to to spot the scams and you know for for an ordinary person looking on if you're not expecting to be scammed i think people are naturally more trusting and do you think you know i mean i mean it's quite prolific you know to your point that there's a lot of scams out there is that because people are having success with them? I, I think that's part of it mm. because the, the scams are doing well mm. and you know it hasn't been regulated and, and regulators aren't able to catch up with them for various means because it's such a new technology 
um, because the technology is evolving so fast, because the scams are so good. You know, practically also recently, coronavirus hasn't helped. A lot of resources have been um, waylaid for that. You know, in, in the UK, we've had the, the disaster that is Brexit. So loads more <laughs> resources have, have gone to that. So regulators and law enforcement, I, I think, probably aren't as equipped as, as might be ideal to do target the scams and the scams because they, they bring in so much money. I mean, you're talking billions of dollars in some cases that they can move on and just pay people to, you know, to take the blame. So I think, I think certainly there have been scams where some people have been arrested and, and the ringleaders, I'm sure, are still running free, unknown and sort of masterminding and orchestrating the scams totally remotely. Um, so there's a lot of knowledge being passed on this, on, on from scam to scam and, and a lot of sort of accumulated experience and, and also money to back them and the softwares and technology that they're using is getting so much better. So I think that's part of it. And then, I mean, also the, the, the other factor is you're, you're talking about digital money. And, you know, when you've got this digital currency that isn't regulated and that has in some cases really gone up in value, people see that and people want to get in for themselves. And, and people want to sort of get rich quick and just be able to have it easy that if you just invest a bit, then you'll make 10x your money really quickly or whatever it is. So people really you know, desperately want to believe that. And, and especially now with the economy in, in tatters in, in many places due to the, the lockdown and due to the coronavirus and, and various factors, people are probably more vulnerable than mm-hmm. ever. And, and the, the things people really want to believe the claims. So I think it's a combination of the, the scammers know exactly how to target people, how to prey on people. And then people, you know, also really, really wanting to believe it and seeing all of these, you know, the, the early sort of riches made by the early Bitcoin investors and so forth and wanting their own share of that. And then plus the scammers are, are, are getting good. And, and for every scam that that's run by you know, one or two guys for, from an office, wherever that is, there's another one that, that is run by really professional criminals who have the budgets and know exactly what they're doing. Mm. Concerning that they're getting more sophisticated as well, I guess, um, because obviously that's going to proliferate and be even more hard, even more difficult to track. I'm, I'm wondering in terms of the range of scams that are out there as well, does that, does that range from the actual currencies themselves all, all the way up to like you know the the doublers the you know we'll give you this return on investment because mm. i presume that there's actually there's probably very little actual crypto behind some of these but some of them probably do actually have something i presume that, that you, you, you you've <laughs> you've touched almost exactly on a key part of the problem that the problem isn't the technology of, of, mm. sort of the crypto itself i think the main problem in this space is sort of the, the ecosystem around it so for mm. example yes you like you say that the bitcoin doublers you've had some you've got these crypto exchanges where people store crypto and, and use to sort of buy and, and trade crypto now everyone's heard the stories in crypto of the people that got in early and had had bitcoin you know from from early on that they'd stored on their computer or stored on a it's called a sort of hard 
hard storage. It's like a little USB stick. Yeah, I've got a little cold storage wallet knocking around here somewhere. <laughs> right, and, and, and people people had those. But the, the thing mm. with those, once, once your crypto is on those, it, it's secure. It can't be hacked. But the problem is you're responsible for your private keys, like the, sort of the, the password, mm. to, to access it. And th- there were lots of stories of people who'd got Bitcoin early and kept it on their computer or kept it on one of the sort of the cold storage devices. And, you know, either because it had just been so long or they'd forgotten about it or because Bitcoin really initially wasn't worth very much and then suddenly bitcoin went up in value and then they realized well hey i've i've thrown away that computer or i've lost i've lost yeah. that that device or i've lost the the the, the sort of private keys to that device there's that or, one guy isn't there in, i think he's in wales isn't he and he keeps petitioning yeah. the, uh, the the council to be able to go into the landfill and try and dig up his computer <laughs> yeah and i mean his, his crypto on that site is is worth or would be worth i think it's 250 million or so forth and he's offered the council the local council i think it's newport a quarter of that for the right to dig it up and um and and sort of get involved <laughs> and and if, if he finds it and of course there's no guarantee, of course, that he would be able to find it after after so long. You're talking about a tiny device in a massive landfill site. There's been that's true mining years. now, actually, isn't it? He would actually literally, literally have to mine uh, it with with his hands, most likely <laughs> with a team of people's hands. Um, but th- there's so many stories like that, and, mm. and there's there's so ma- many you know bitcoins that, that are sort of effectively lost, you know, down the back of the sofa right? that have been lost in these manners that people can't get back. So everyone's heard all these horror stories, and and then they don't want to be responsible for sort of trusting themselves to look after their own private keys. So you've got all these crypto exchanges that make all these claims like, hey, we'll just look after your Bitcoin for you. Just send us your Bitcoin. We'll keep it safely for you. We'll store it for you. You don't have to worry about your private keys. We'll do all of that for you. Now, there's crypto exchanges and crypto exchanges. There's some crypto exchanges that you know comply with regulators that do safety checks that have insurance that you know do whatever they can to sort of make make themselves you know relatively as, as safe as can be that have good intentions and there's other crypto exchanges where the sole purpose of, of starting them from the founder seems to be to, to con as many people as possible <laughs> into sending their their crypto into these exchanges and then they exit scam mm. so there's been a few cases of those recently there was one in Turkey recently, I think it was called Todex or Tardex or, or something like that. And the, the, the founder exit scammed with $2.2 billion worth of, of, of its wow. users' crypto. There was one which is covered in the book, uh, Quadriga. It was at the time the biggest Canadian crypto exchange. And you know, everyone believed him and trusted it because it was the local exchange. It was it was meant to be so good. And, and that's been now found to have been a scam from the start. And it was operating almost like a, a, a Ponzi scheme. And so do these people get away with these things at the moment because it's still – it feels – well, I mean, you, the way you're describing it certainly feels a little bit like the Wild West. But the uh, it, are people getting away with this stuff? Um, a lot are. So, um, yeah, yeah, yes and no. Law, law enforcement and, and regulators are, are, are getting onto it and, mm. and are doing what they can to, to track these people down. So with, with many of the worst scams, there are a lot of people now in, in prison, um, either being tried or, or, or now already in prison. So, you know, law, law enforcement are getting onto them and, 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 you know, really are sort of going back and, and, and doing what they can. And a lot of people are, are now being charged with them. But then the, the problem is specifically with some of the, the sort of the bigger, especially some of the Asian scams, it seems, 
there's been a lot of people who have been caught, but it seems that the people that have been caught are are not the masterminds. They're, mm. they're sort of the people that have been almost, I, I don't know if used is the right term, but they've yeah. been sort of the front men, that they've been the faces, they've been, you know, what the world would see as the ones running it. But it, it, it's believed that the real masterminds behind it, sort of the, the real organized guys behind it, it's believed that they're still running free. And, and it, it seems with some of them that, that people don't really have an idea who's really behind them. Wow. So yes, yes, people are now getting caught, uh, at least for the worst ones. And I think that will continue. But the, the, the problem is it's that they're so big and they're so large to investigate and there's so many people involved in them. I, I think inevitably that will continue to be the case that the real mm. sort of masterminds behind them are, are probably so removed and you know probably know exactly what they're doing that they that they are getting away with it wow uh, are the um are they actually getting decent sentences as well when they are getting caught or is that still an area of law that hasn't been fully fledged out yet so they they, they, they are um i i think largely because you know the, the big ones that they're going after you're, you're talking that there's one one coin they, they've bought in, it's now believed to be $25 billion and, and wow. have affected millions of people. And, and you're, you're talking about sort of huge sort of criminal organizations and, you know, money laundering and, and all of these things. So, yeah, there, there, there's, there's people getting really long sentences there mm. for, for, for those. Ones. And you know, for, for the bigger scams, you're talking about such huge volumes of money and so many people affected that. You know the, the the authorities are, are are really have got something to go with for those. So that actually falls under like existing money laundering scam related things. It doesn't. It, it applies even though it's digital. Yeah, and yeah. and and fraud and everything because ultimately they're still conning people out of out of large amounts of of money. Wow, but still missing the ringleaders. So is this ever the sort of sort of content we're going to find in the book? So the, the book is is a, a sort of a hopefully a fast paced overview of some of the, the the biggest scams, some of the biggest hacks, some of the the biggest sort of you know there, there's some instances in crypto where I think it wasn't even so much a scam as just so much a series of misfortunate events and happenings and and bad lucks you know and and you know in some cases you, I think you have to feel quite sorry for the people leading them you know where where the intention I don't think ever was to scam it's just it was the early crypto space so it's a sort of a whirlwind tour oh, so there's some unintent unintentional uh... I, I, I think I think that's probably the best way to put it where yes wow. people lost money but I don't think that was necessarily the founders mm. in intention mm. um and you know, and and then through to the ones where where it literally was was organised crime masterminding these multi billion dollar scams, um, and some hacks. And then there's a bit about the the sort of the ICO, the initial coin era, and the bubble that was. You know, you've got every type of project under the sun being launched on the blockchain. You know that that was never needed. It was just these opportunistic these opportunists sort of trying to launch these new projects and using sort of the, the initial coin offering as, as I think, the easiest way to get money. And you're talking about projects that had they gone to a bank or to a VC or to a professional investor, they'd probably been laughed all the way home because there was never any purpose or, or business or anything behind that. So it looks not only at the scams, but also at that, that ICO time when it really was, you know, sometimes individuals that had awful ideas that could never have possibly <laughs> been businesses just 
copying a bit of open source code and paying a freelancer a few dollars to create, you know, copy a template website, create a, you know, pretty bad logo, copy someone else's white paper to describe what the project, you know, what supposedly was going to do, except it never ended up actually doing that. And then, then you could just pay to list the project on one of these listing sites and, you know, you could create your own cryptocurrency that was quite easy and cheap to do and you know, call it scam coin or whatever you wanted to call it. <laughs> and, and they still raised money. There, there literally was one called scam coin. There was another one called Ponzi coin. There was one called useless Ethereum token that, that, basically told people <laughs> they were going to you know they were out to scam people or or that they, they weren't going to do anything with the money other than one of them said you know we're, we're not going to do anything you know maybe we'll buy ourselves some smart tvs wow. and, and people still sent in money so it was just this total sort of bubble period where it was just a combination of hype and opportunists and well, opportunists and, and scams and excitement and the whole thing sort of bubbled up into this this crazy frenzy. So it, it looks at sort of an overview of the the craziest stories and times in the crypto space, and and that at the end also touches on some of what I would consider to be the cooler use cases of, of crypto. You've got interested enough in crypto in sort of twenty eighteen enough to launch the Curry Club. Yes. When did you start writing the book? Well, I, I got very lucky on on the timing. The publisher reached out to me, and, and just before lockdown, so I started writing it and started researching it at the start of lockdown, mm. and and that took me pretty much all through last year. So for the entirety of lockdown, we we were in lockdown from March last year, March March twenty twenty. And pretty much still are effectively. <laughs> um, so it it what it was the ultimate lockdown project. Mm. Um, so it was pretty much all of all of 2020, and I'd I'd been I think lucky with the, the timings through through the Crypto Curry Club. We've got access to incredible people, and and how how it had sort of worked. Well, I'd been sent at the end of 2019. I'd been sent a link to the Missing Crypto Queen podcast series, and I, I'd been sent that podcast. And you know, I'd, I'd never listened to podcasts, and I was absolutely hooked. I listened to it twice in a row, and then I I emailed the host of it, Jamie Bartlett. And slightly, I suppose, cheekily, just saying, you know, I run this crypto curry club, and I love your podcast. Would you, would you be willing to speak at one of our events? And you know, he replied that he'd, he'd love to, and I was, I was so happy. So he came and spoke at one of our, our, our crypto curries um, just a few months before lockdown, and it was absolutely incredible. He told us the most incredible stories uh, about investigating the scam and, and all of his findings. It was just absolutely incredible, and, and he told us some of the stuff that he couldn't probably share so openly on on mm. a podcast and and what was really good i mean a we had that and he's introduced me to a few other people from the the show but also from that event because this was one of the real life in-person crypto curry events before before lockdown and, and our community is made up of what is now thousands of people who've been in the space since since early days you know since right at the beginning sometimes so quite a few people came forward to me and started telling me their own stories of, of other crypto scams that they'd seen or that they'd witnessed or, you know, that they tried to stop or tried to warn people about. And they told me their own stories and, and crazy stories, you know, real death threats and, and messages wow. from sort of, you know, organized crime and government involvement. They, they told me these absolutely crazy stories that they'd, you know, experienced just because they'd witnessed or tried to 
warn other people about some of the earlier uh, the earlier scams and, and then they sort of started bringing me into into some of the facebook groups and social media groups that are run by the scams and you know what's so crazy you've got these real life facebook groups run by these scams and being sort of promoting scams and with people literally scamming each other there <laughs> in, in front of your eyes on these facebook groups and you know they, they brought me into them and i was just sat sort of sat in these groups just you know, watching and reading these posts, just like, I can't believe this is happening. So, you know, it, it, it all sort of worked out quite, I suppose, fortuitously that, that uh-huh. the publisher approached after I'd, I'd had this this event with Jamie and sort of been approached by all these people that told me all of their stories about scams. So as a result of that, I was able to speak to so many, you know, incredible people with the most, you know, incredible stories and, and their own sort of experiences of, of a lot of it. So did the publisher contact you off the back of the Curry Club? Was that why they were so interested? I'm not entirely sure. I should ask them. <laughs> um, I, 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 think, I think that was part of it because we had mm. the, the community and I think they probably hoped that people in the community would, would buy the book mm. uh, and, and partly because of you know, the, the, the contacts to be able to speak to people about it. It certainly wasn't because of my writing ability. I think I'd <laughs> been a grand total of nothing in between then and, and my uni dissertation which was at the time a traumatic experience and I, I don't think writing that that dissertation was was my forte in life so. <laughs> yeah I identify with, with that as well actually um wow I mean so are, are there any uh, well there's there's so many so much stuff in that book but are you able to uh, give us some teasers to encourage the listeners to this show this podcast to uh, to, to maybe buy the book yeah so I mean it hopefully people will buy the book to, to get a, a good overview of, of some of the, the crazier, worst, sort mm. of, you know, incredulous stories of, of the earlier days in crypto. So some of the stories it, it touches on is, is uh, the Canadian Crypto Exchange, where the founder um, wrote her will uh, four days before going to India on a honeymoon and and got, got married, went on honeymoon, and then died under the most mysterious circumstances. And, you know, then the stories came out that it had been a scam from the start and that his pilot and other people had supposedly um, seen him carrying stacks of up to 50 grand in cash out or you know, <laughs> off the country at a time. And, and, and there's now still nobody I've spoken to in the space believes he's dead. So that there was a, there was a, a burial uh, and you still got people petitioning for his body to be exhumed to, to see if it was actually him, if he actually died. There's not a single person I've spoken to in the entire crypto space who believes this man is dead. Uh, and and you know, they, they believe he literally just did an exit scam. I mean, either way, it was a scam and you know, the, the, the money is lost. But it's, it's just it's this crazy story. So what do you, do you expect that that's sort of like a plastic surgery type? Possibly. What's your, th- what's your theory? I it, it it to me it seems if he died it was very unlucky and and a lot of suspicious circumstances. Sounds it's a little possible. too unlucky it's, to me. <laughs> it's it, it's possible he'd had health conditions. It's it's mm. possible people die all the time. Having travelled extensively in Asia, there are also places where I imagine that one could live relatively happy, happily, relatively cheaply, and relatively quietly sort of almost unnoticed by the rest mm. of the world so who knows who knows um and then you've got the missing crypto queen the 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 one coin scam where ruja the founder and this is covered in the bbc's podcast series also but ruja the founder had a uh, it, it's been declared by by the fbi and by law enforcement to have been a scam since 20 since 
2017 and there's people have been arrested her brothers arrested her her lawyers being arrested and so forth and they're now in u.s prisons and the, the story there she was having she was married and and was having an affair um with her also married money launderer and you know they, they'd hoped to sort of run away together and have kids together and she was she was rather jealous apparently that he hadn't quite left his wife for her so she you know, apparently bought the flat beneath his in Miami and, and hired somebody to drill a hole between the two so that she could listen in on him and his wife to see if he was going to leave his wife for her. But in, <laughs> instead, she overheard him telling his wife that she was wanted by the FBI because in, in the meantime, he'd become a, an FBI informant and, and sort of a plea deal. So, so she's been missing ever since as well. And, and this is wow. a woman who's now expected to have managed to take you know, maybe several billion dollars away with her. She already liked plastic surgery. She'd already had a lot of plastic surgery. She's highly intelligent. She speaks, I think it was five languages fluently. It's not impossible that she's still alive. So the, the, the expectation is a lot of people think she's still alive and is hiding out somewhere. I, I think my personal belief on that one is it's now known that there were collaborations with with organized crime with mafia with even with government involvement my assumption is that that she knows too much she's going to be in prison for the rest of her life if she ever gets caught Mm. and there's no incentive to her not to talk so my assumption is that she'd have been bumped off because she served her purpose and is now useless and and knows too much but I have absolutely no idea. And then it just goes into some of the absolute craziest sort of crypto projects and and ideas and concepts that, that literally you wouldn't you wouldn't believe would be true or you wouldn't believe would be businesses, except they they actually were. <laughs> Sounds like you could have a whole true crime podcast just on uh, just on all of the on crypto. <laughs> Maybe that's what we should do. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you hear it here first. <laughs> yeah. No, that's just re- rebrand. Yeah, absolutely. Why not? Um, but you do you actually have a podcast as well, don't you? Don't you have a curry cast? Yes, yes, yes. We 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 started doing. Ironically, started doing. We did two whole episodes before lockdown, and 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 promptly I bought all the the, the microphones and everything for it and left it in the office uh, <laughs> in, in in March last year and only managed to get access to that again just a, a week or two ago. So yeah, so <laughs> we, we, we've been doing quite a, a lot of online content and then webinars and so forth. So hopefully, I, I do very much hope that we'll one day be able to resume in-person podcasts again. Yeah, well, it's funny since starting this podcast because I I do have a co-host normally, Sam, who mm-hmm. just isn't actually able to make it today. But um, we haven't done a single episode in person; it's all right. been entirely remote, um, which is interesting. It's nice to meet people, but it's it'd be great to same. do it in person. It's not the same. It's not the same. <laughs> no, no, no. Absolutely, it's it's much nicer to be able to meet people in person. I guess. Um. You mentioned as well about some of the misfortune stuff. Have you got, what what the what what misfortunes can you uh, enlighten us on? What what do you mean by misfortunes? So you mentioned before that there was uh, there was the the hacks as well. There was mm-hmm. the scams which we've talked about. Uh, but you also mentioned about some misfortune. Well, we talked a bit, a bit about the uh, the guy who's lost his crypto in the uh, in the rubbish dump. But are there yeah, any well, there's others? More, there, there's more. Few, there's more than a few of those of, mm. of people that that you know just lost crypto under you know, all sorts of circumstances earlier and, you know, or trusted it to exchanges. I think the, the one that I, I refer to in the book, that sort of the, 
the, the, there's a, an exchange called Mt. Gox, which was the, the biggest crypto exchange, the biggest Bitcoin exchange in the early days. And it had about 80% of all crypto going through it at that one time. And, you know, that, that one, I don't think started off with any intention to scam anybody at all. But the, the guy who sort of took it over, it had been started by somebody else who didn't want to run it anymore. It started off as a, an exchange for it was called Magic the Gathering. It's a, it's a sort of a playing card game for mm, people yeah. to trade these playing cards, you know, rather niche. And then I think that the founder had, had come to the conclusion that running an exchange for this sort of niche trading site for trading these niche playing cards probably wasn't what he wanted to spend his life doing and turned it into a Bitcoin exchange. And then this other guy took it over. And, you know, I, I think it's fair to, to say that the guy who ended up taking it over probably wasn't the ultimate best person to run what was to be the, the biggest crypto exchange at the time. But it is now thought that it had already been hacked. It had already been having tech problems. And what, what ha- happened, because this exchange was hacked so often, it was just constantly bleeding out crypto. And the hackers were clever. They knew that if they took all of the crypto in one go, because this was early days of Bitcoin, when the liquidity just wasn't there. Had they taken all of the Bitcoin in one go, they wouldn't have been able to cash it out. It would have just crashed the market. It would have been too easy mm. to trace. So they wouldn't have been able to realize the value of it. So they realized that and just sort of leaked it out slowly, drip by drip <laughs> by drip by drip. So the exchange wow. never realized that they were having their Bitcoin stolen because there was just always fresh Bitcoin going in, which covered up the Bitcoin going out. Now, had they, you know, one could argue, had they checked, had they had sort of proper accounting, maybe they would have mm. realized earlier. But anyhow, they they didn't but now it's even thought that it had been hacked before he even took it over so it was effectively bankrupt before it even started so you know not not that they're entirely innocent in the process uh, you know by by no definition of the word they could have done an awful lot more in terms of security in terms of checks in terms of accounting and so forth but it, i think you do get the impression that you've got these early crypto projects and these early crypto exchanges where they they grew so fast and people were just in totally over their heads and in in this Mm. case i mean the the guy you know i think what started off as a small sort of side project just because of how the crypto space was it just totally ballooned and totally exploded into this thing that was just absolutely massive and probably unmanageable that would have taken an army of of trained experts to to run it so you know i i don't think one can call mount gox a scam certainly i know a lot of people personally who lost money to that mm. or you know, possibly get their money back or not. They're not really holding out any hope for that uh, and it's still ongoing. But, you know, the, the, I think that is also demonstrative of, of the early crypto space where it was just so, you know, so wild and there was no regulation and the, the user experience was horrific. And, you know, all, all of these companies that really even wanted to get banked and wanted to do things properly couldn't because no bank would take them or the banks were messing them over and so forth. So, and nobody would do the auditing checks. So, you know, I, I think it's one of those spaces where in some cases it's, it's certainly not black and white who, who's to, to blame. And, you know, for the, for the guy who ended up running Mount Gox, you know, I, I, I think I and quite a few people feel quite sorry for him that he was just totally in over his head and just made a bunch of mistakes but the, the intention wasn't there to, to scam so w- w- are there any particular success stories that that spring to mind 
In crypto? Yeah, yeah. What, what, what are the ones that stick out for you that, you know, are, are the, the real winners at this particular moment in time, the exciting projects? Because we all know about Bitcoin and things like that, and that's a different discussion. But, but what are the other exciting projects that you think we should be keeping our eye on? I mean, I'd probably argue that Bitcoin is the, the most exciting of all. Um, <laughs> the, 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 the technology and the concepts behind it are incredible, and it's done mm. so much. And it's just a sort of this master sort of, what's the term, this sort of master print for mm. what can be done and how it could be done. It's just eye-opening. And it's, it's, you know, it really was the first time that people can send money from, a, you know, from person to person without needing to trust, you know, what are quite often corrupt banks and corrupt governments and companies that can just disappear with your money or charge you crazy high amounts and mm. cause unnecessary delays. So I, I, I'd still say for me, it's, it's Bitcoin. I mean, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that Bitcoin is a, is a bad thing. I'm, I'm, I'm curious about the, the other smaller coins. I mean, let's, well, let's have a, a quick conversation about, about Bitcoin though. Cause I mean, you know, there's been a whole load of people, people have been getting very excited about Bitcoin um, probably in the last Guess six months, the end of 2020. Are you referring 20 to months? some of our billionaire friends? And, I, I was uh, about to mention a specific. To, uh, I was uh, about <laughs> to mention one specific billionaire. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and uh, <laughs> a, a, a tendency to like like tweeting about. Mm, yes, yes. Actually, I mean that's another point. I mean, how does the how does the tweeting factor in for you? I mean, is that is that going in the direction of you know? Is that insider trading? Are we going to have some uh, some issues down the line, or you know, we we we've got a, a WhatsApp group, a sort of closed chat group for for the Critical Club, and I think the the general consensus there is that it's blatant market manipulation. Mm. Everybody seems seems <laughs> you know seems to agree on that, and you know our, our, our billionaire friend is is very clever, um, mm. you, you know, and 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 points made are valid it's good to accept bitcoin if you're a company it's probably good to hedge a certain percentage of your money in bitcoin it's also very true that bitcoin is bad for the environment and uses a lot of energy and that it would be better if it used sustainable energy all of the points made are are very valid and it's hard to disagree with those so in that sense it's less blatant market manipulation than we've seen throughout the era of you know of, of of youtubers and and influencers but what do you think to this sort of, you know, we're all in on Bitcoin from our billionaire friend and his subs- subsidiary companies um, to, oh, actually, now we're all out of Bitcoin. And, you know, you can you can pay with Bitcoin or you can't pay with Bitcoin. And then we'll be Bitcoin. back in Bitcoin when yeah. it's this and, and the other. I, 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 I find it hard to imagine that somebody clever enough to create such successful and large companies and make so much money and do so many incredible things doesn't know what they're doing. Do you think he wants them to be all solar powered? <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> so it's a ploy for solar city. I think. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean that's the thing. I think I think Bitcoin is um, you know it's the monster in this in this whole scenario, and I think all of the other coins have sort of been pegged to that for at least a very long time. But it seems like that might be starting to shift. I, I don't know what your your interpretation is. You're closer to this than I am. I mean, I think Bitcoin is, is, is still king and, and, and is still dominant. I think where the, the conversation will now go, um, in, in one argument, the, the sort of the stable coin concept is, is very good because Bitcoin and, and cryptocurrencies are very volatile. And if you rely on that for, for your earnings, for your life savings, 
volatility isn't necessarily good and you know the you've got people in in venezuela and in countries all around the world that literally rely on, on bitcoin as as a lifeline because it's less volatile and it's far safer than their national currency and it's often the only way they can get money out of mm. of their national currency so you know i i think it would be wonderful for people all around the world to have a uh, you know, a relatively stable asset-backed digital currency that isn't manipulated, that people can can rely on for international payments, for being able to save money digitally, because you've still got a third of the world's uh, population that don't have access to banking. And the likelihood that, that traditional banks are going to suddenly decide in a charitable way to, to go out to, to bank the poorest people around the world, it's, it's, it's almost non-existent. Mm-hmm. So if we're talking about... Um ubiquitous crypto i guess mm-hmm. so governments getting involved in crypto um you know the they're actually being de facto currencies around the world um that you know is, is it going to be bitcoin is it going to be a derivative of that is it going to be one of the smaller coins uh, is it going to be something entirely new or what, what do you think it's going to be I mean, I think the one thing one's learned with, with with the crypto markets that they are manipulated and there's so many factors at stake is that one can't make any any form of guess. My belief and assumption, I I, I think, slash hope that, that Bitcoin will continue to, to be dominant in the crypto space. Mm. Um, it, it, it was the first, it has first user advantage, it's safe, it's seen as a store of value. Are you going to be using Bitcoin every time you want to buy a coffee? And possibly not. But I, I, I think Bitcoin has its its place and will continue to have its place. I think what we'll see is there'll be other cryptocurrencies which will come forward and, and be used more in, in sort of transactions and payments. Maybe that's a very maybe that's another one that will come forward that will be very light, very fast, very cheap to use, very energy efficient. That, that they're always being developed. So you know, I, I think there will continue to be a lot of innovation. In the space, I mean, at the moment, you've got about 10,000 different cryptocurrencies. I, I believe that probably yeah. <laughs> 99% of those will, you know, I mean, lots of those are already basically useless and, and not really, you know, actively being developed anymore. But I, I am sure that before a few years are out, we'll see many more. And we'll also see that 99% of those won't won't be actively being used. Um, I think what we'll also see is, is more digital mm-hmm. currencies being used in in, in incentive payments and loyalty rewards and you know instead of going into a coffee shop and every time you buy a coffee you get a stamp and then once you've got nine stamps you get a free coffee i i don't think we'll see many more of those paper sort of tickets and any more way where you used to get the your sort of paper cards and you get your stamps and after 10 coffees you get a free coffee mm. i i think there'll be more of a move towards the digital loyalty points so you know maybe brands will have their own tokens or maybe there'll be one universal one that'll come out to be used for that i think that that's an incredibly interesting space to be to be in and to be watching but i do think we'll see much more on the incentive on the rewards payments on the sort of incentive points or you know tipping you or liking someone's tweet or you know every time you buy some coffee or something i i do see you've got you've got so much talk now of the the central banks and and, and governments around the world now launching their own national digital currencies and my uh, assumption, I mean, just for example, in, in the UK, you've got to talk about the sort of the, the digital pound. And I my assumption is that that will be more one to replace the pound, i.e. if you've got physical pounds, if, you know, if I want to buy drugs from you, if you want to buy drugs from me, the, the best <laughs> way to do that, you know, the easiest way to do that is, is for us to meet in person and, and swap 
drugs for a ten pound mm. note or a twenty pound note or however much they cost these days, you know, for for cash because that can't be traced. And, and and with physical cash, you've got all the problems. You've got all of the, you know, it can be faked. It, mm. it can be, um, you know, it, it, it's easier to use in crime because you can't trace it. So you know, I, I do think the governments will be trying to get rid of cash a because of the, the sort of the physical and the the energy costs of, of of printing it, and b because it is so easy to to fake, and they've got to do all these checks around that, and there's so and so much percentages of all sort of banknotes are 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 faked, and, and then also because it is easier to use in crime. So I think we'll see national governments go more towards sort of a digital currency where they can have much more control over it. They've got much more data over it which is, is great for governments and great for central banks and probably not great for the entire rest of the population, but maybe that's just my opinion. Uh, but I, I, I think we'll see Bitcoin and some of the other cryptocurrencies running separately alongside that still. Well, I think on the security sense, I mean, it kind of makes sense to a degree because I think, um, I mean, I think it's an old statistic, but I think there was somewhere in the region of about a third of um, all physical pound coins were fake at one point um, <laughs> i didn't know it's that bad i didn't know it's that bad wow. it's probably it's probably not and it's probably a statistic i'm remembering from about 15 years ago and i've embellished it somewhat but <laughs> i certainly read it at some point um the uh the the, the point you're mentioned making though about the the government and i mean I mean, our government's questionable as any, anyway. I mean, in, in other parts of the you're, world, you're being very polite. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I've I've tried to check out of the news over the last yeah. six months because it's just too depressing. Um, but <laughs> but I certainly yeah, you're, 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 but you're you're right. Um, you know, we're, we're still relatively incredibly lucky mm. in in the UK, and and there are governments with less good intentions mm. and, and there are governments that are, are totally corrupt and there are governments where where the intention is is entirely to to control their citizens and we're already seeing that around the world and and what i find scary about the sort of the concept of the national digital currency is once that enforced i mean we're already seeing that with the, with the corona legislations once something is is there once a the technology is there once something's been brought in and accepted by the people it's only ever, oh, just do this. This is the next good thing. This is the next good thing. And people do it and people believe it. We're already seeing that with, with freedoms being taken away with the, the corona um, mm. virus, which, you know, in in in, in, in many ways, I, I have nothing against because, you know, I'd, I'd rather be, to be honest, protected from the, the coronavirus and, and I'd rather stay home and be safe. Mm. That's, again, a personal opinion. But I, I think my worry with those digital currencies is, is it, it will be quite easy for governments to just bring in more changes and more uh, sort of abilities to, to control things and to have access to people's data and so forth. Uh, and people will have to accept that because they'll just get used to it or they'll get told it's okay or they won't notice it. And then there's also the fact that you are only ever one election away from mm. something changing or one personality away from something changing. So, you know, even if something gets brought in with the absolute best of intentions, it's not that that can't change. Mm. I always liked the idea with, behind um, with crypto, the fact it being totally decentralized. I think it's uh, it's almost quite scary to think about governments co-opting that technology because of the you know, as you say, you know, you're only one election away. It, it's almost terrifying. I think. Well, I, I think it's fair to say that that sort of government national current national digital currencies won't be entirely decentralized. 
<laughs> yeah, my my, uh, my my concern really. I think I I like the idea that we could be sort of slowly but surely be progressing towards a global credit system in a sort of dystopian future kind of way that is all entirely decentralized and has no governmental control. Uh, <laughs> but um, that seems very far away. <laughs> yeah, and uh, yeah, there, there, there's there's place for structure and and you know and government mm. I, I i'm you know there's there's many people in the crypto space that that, that really want that and that i'm i'm not disputing that but i i you know we, we've seen it over and over again when, when governments get too much power mm. things can can change and and the reality is once you've got power over over your money if you can just block your access to your wallet or block your ability to book transport tickets you know in in, in china that they're, they're trying to make it that citizens if if they're in, in that sort of wrong social sector that 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 if there's people that they that they want to be able to basically not leave their apartments not be able to do mm. anything that that's that's the aim and there I, I find that really scary no it's terrifying it, and and a possible future I think uh, not not yeah not not impossible by any definition of the word it's it's very black mirror but it's it's <laughs> yeah. it's already happening <laughs> i mean speaking of which in terms of like the future we've talked about the direction how far away do you think we are from from realizing sort of crypto becoming sort of overtaking cash i guess and being becoming more sort of the standard and also you know reaching those international payments and having mm. that that free international I mean, when do Western Union need to start worrying? Hopefully, they already are. They're a horrible <laughs> company. Um, they're an absolutely horrible company. All of those remittance companies are. Hopefully, they really are stressing. Um, <laughs> I, I, I think there's two parts of that question. Will Bitcoin replace cash or will sort of decentralized cryptocurrencies replace government currencies? I don't imagine. I mean, we're already seeing Bitcoin accepted as, as legal tender in, in some mm. places now. Will it replace all cash all around the world? No, probably not. Um, uh, at least not in the immediate future. Um, I, I think what we will see is, is sort of the, the concept of this national digital currency where maybe they use blockchain technology or, or, or not. And then I think what we will see is just much more mainstream crypto use where, where just practically because of how crypto works, because you can send crypto transactions quickly and, and and almost for free if you're using certain cryptocurrencies. So I, I I think it won't be so long where, for example, if you go into your WhatsApp now, you, you can send photos, you can send videos, you can send voice messages, you can send links, you can send written messages. I, I, I think it won't be that long before we're going into our social media or our messaging apps and we'll be able to send money. And and you know what we're already seeing now is these sort of naming services where you know, if, if I want to send you crypto, I don't need your Bitcoin address where I could have you saved in my phone as whatever. Um, and, you know, I could have you saved in my in my phone and, and you're in my contact address. So and just as I could send you a message, just as I could send you a photo, I, I could send you crypto to your mm. the name I've got you saved in my contact book. And, and that's already happening now. So I, I think in terms of mainstream crypto payments, be that being able to send crypto between friends or to freelancers or in the gig economy or, or, or for payments like that. I, I think the user experience of, of crypto is, is changing so fast and there's so much focus on that now. Mm. That, that, that's an incredible transformation. So I do think soon, you know, within, within the next few years, certainly, we'll, we'll be able to make these payments in crypto without having to go on to 
a crypto exchange or without needing to, to buy crypto or do any of the complicated things that you have to now. And, and I think it will be basically like sending money. You'll be able to send you, I'll be able to send you, I don't know, 50p or whatever that mm. is. And you won't need to know how it works. You won't need to know that it's crypto. You won't need to know that it's using blockchain. It's just the equivalent of it's just the easiest way to send you whatever that is, 50p or a pound or whatever, whatever quantity you want to send digitally between two people. And, and what's your um, your thoughts on the application outside of just currency? So, you know, obviously there's been an, an awful lot of talk about NFTs become very popular in the last uh, last six months as well. Do you think that other applications like that, you know, there's been talk about that replacing traditional copyright, those sort of things. Uh, do you think there's more applications like that that we can expect in, in the coming months and years yeah t- totally i mean the, the concept of nfts is, isn't brand new it's, it's more mm. sort of the, the the name is but yeah absolutely i think we'll be seeing more of that and they became popular with digital art but you've you've really got so many industries where there's a, a use for having a digital version of, of of something so for example diamonds if you buy a diamond currently you have no way of knowing really where it came from was it sustainably mined if 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 you want to sell me a diamond okay maybe you've got a certificate but how do i really know it's the same diamond that links to the certificate whereas with with you can have now this this concept where you've basically got nfts of of diamonds where you've got sort of a digital skeleton of that diamond and the digital certificate of that diamond so you can mm. prove that this is the same diamond and this is where it was mined and this it was mined sustainably and you know, you bought it from so-and-so and and you sold it to me for so-and-so and so so forth. So you've got much more proof. And likewise, for example, within the, the, you know, alcohol and and it is now NFTs of whiskey and fine wines and so forth because you've got, I think the statistic is that 10% of all alcohol is is faked, is is not what you think it is. And yeah, there's been some incredible stories and documentaries, but the the fine wine industry, the sort of the fine alcohol industries there's, there's all sorts of fraud in that and oh so we're talking like the, the sort of top ends of the the booze that you never drink well, the, the, the the top ends of booze that you you maybe never drink that that, mm. that it's an investment but then also i mean even in the lower ends there's all these these reports that if you buy i don't know a cheap wine that says it's such and such a grape or actually it's a mix of such and such grapes mm. or it's you know it's, it's from whatever so it's it's you know, maybe, maybe more creative marketing, but there's all these statistics out. The food, I think, it's about ten percent of all food that you buy isn't what you think it is. If you buy white fish, they say it's whatever it is, and actually, often it's some other type of strange white fish from Vietnam. Or oh, there's all these. <laughs> it's the horse meat scandal all over again. <laughs> exactly, horse meat, or um, you know, you think you're buying free range eggs or organic eggs. Well, mm. there's been all these cases where actually they're battery eggs that they just stick an organic label on. And people don't know. So, and, you know, 50%, I think, of chocolate is, is made by slave labor or, 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 or has child labor, labor in it. And it's something similar for, for clothing. There's, there's so many problems in traditional supply chains and traditional industries, partly because the supply chains are so complicated and partly because the brands are so, you know, large that, A, they probably frankly don't care about the conditions of their end workers and B because they're so the supply chains are so complicated they have no ability to really know what's going on so it involves huge levels of trust whereas by putting certain amounts of these data of data on, on blockchain which also involves I, IOT and other things to actually check that it's all true and then having you know NFTs to prove that NFT basically being sort of digital 
certificate to show, well, you know, this raw ingredient was bought from this place and includes X, Y, Z, and it was transported at so-and-so and was bought by so-and-so and so forth to, to show that sort of the real ingredients or the real origin of, of the product. I think that will add a lot more transparency and will add to resale values and so forth. So, you know, I, I think there's a huge place for that and that's quite an exciting space at the moment. Wow. I mean, there's so many applications there that I hadn't even thought of. And I don't think I realized quite how many are the are these scams all in the book as well, or are these just other scams that you know about? No, no, no. I mean, there's I mean, there's a few documentaries about the sort of the alcohol and the food ones. So no, no, we don't go into the. the I think the, you're the getting better documentaries. I think you're getting the documentary recommendations on Netflix than I am. <laughs> <laughs> um, so no, 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 it does it doesn't go on to those, and that that's you know totally going off the subject of, of crypto. And and you know there, there's other there's other crypto scams, and there's other scams still happening today. Well, I mean, it's been amazing talking to you, and I'm conscious I'm taking up a lot of your time. So, uh, in terms of wrapping this up, where can people get the book? How can people get involved in the Curry Club and anything else that you want to talk about? <laughs> well, no, thank you so much for having me on. So, the Curry Club, it's cryptocurryclub.com. So there's a newsletter, there's an industry publication, all totally free to subscribe to. We've got virtual events one day, hopefully soon. Maybe we'll have in-person events again, but we'll see. Um, subject to, to Corona. Um, and, and the book, it's it's Crypto Wars, Fake Deaths, Missing Billions and Industry Disruption. So that's available um, it's available from the publisher, kokenpage.com, with a discount code, Crypto Wars 20. It's available from all good bookshops, from Waterstones, WH Smith, Foils, Blackwells, Amazon, yeah, and, and wherever you buy your books from. Great. Well, thank you very much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me.